Section 12 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botes. The Byzantine Empire, the Rearguard of European Civilization, by Edward Ford. Section 12. Irene's Successors to Michael III. It is probable that Irene's eunuchs supported Nicephorus for the reason that they expected to find in him a convenient tool. They were bitterly disappointed. He was a man of decided character, possessed of considerable ability and great force of will. Nicephorus inherited the triple struggle, which had been the portion of his Isaurian predecessors. The Saracens continually threatened the Asiatic provinces, and Harun was still caliph, as desirous as ever for the delights of rapine. In Europe, an enemy who lacked the savage caliph's thin veneer of culture, Krum of Bulgaria, menaced the empire. Within, the strife between iconoclasm and iconoduli continued, and the administration, owing to the wasteful policy of Irene, was in grave disorder. In religious matters, the new emperor inaugurated a policy of toleration, which, naturally, did not make him popular with the iconodules. As an administrator, the financier predominated in him, and he is said to have welcomed decisions against corrupt officials for the opportunity thereby afforded of confiscating their property. He re-established the custom duties at Hellespont, which had been remitted by Irene in order to purchase popularity, imposed a tax of two nomismata on the sale of slaves and increased the stamp duty on documents. He made all monasteries liable to the hearth tax. The measure was entirely justifiable, for religious houses escaped many obligations which fell upon the late taxpayer. Worse still, in the eyes of the monastic chroniclers, he quartered troops in monasteries and permitted the sale of sacred plate as he had had experience in finance, it is probable that the taxpayers found evasion of their burdens difficult. The most ill-advised of his financial acts was that he converted the entire non-native agricultural population into imperial serfs. It should be said that he expanded the revenue freely, in the public service, and cannot be accused of foolish parsimony. Internally, his rise led, naturally enough, to disturbances. Vardan, an Armenian general, revolted, but his troops deserted, and he was tonsured. In 808, a plot was formed to substitute Arsharvir, another Armenian, for Nicephorus. It was discovered, Arsharvir's estate was confiscated, 
and he was tonsured. The emperor scarcely erred on the side of cruelty. Hostilities of a feeble sort dragged on with the new Western Empire during the greater part of the reign. They ended in 810 with a provisional treaty on the basis of the status quo. The Saracen War was far more troublesome. Nicephorus had repudiated Irene's shameful treaty, but acted rashly in doing so, before reorganizing the army. In 804, the generals of Harun advanced across Taurus, and defeated Nicephorus at Crassus. In 806, Harun himself took the field, and captured Tiana and Heraclea on Taurus, while another army ravaged Anatolicon and stormed Ancyra. Nicephorus, hampered by the disorganization of the army and troubled with Bulgarian raids, sued for peace, which was only granted on the terms of a yearly tribute of 30,000 nomismata with six great gold medals for himself and his son Stavrakius. The ruined fortresses were not to be restored. Harun, who also had troubles elsewhere, was probably glad to retire with honor. Nicephorus made no attempt to fulfill the conditions of the treaty, and next year Cyprus and Rhodes were wasted. But in 809 Harun died. The only result of the war was that the frontier regions on both sides of the border steadily deteriorated. In Europe, a revolt of the Slavs in Greece was put down by the almost unaided efforts of the Hellenes, but the Bulgarian invasion was to prove the ruin of Nicephorus. Krum was a mere barbarian in instincts, but a great warrior. He had gained great successes over the decrepit Avars, and in 809 turned his attention to the empire. He surprised a small Roman force near the Strimon, and then besieged Sardica. The fortress had a strong garrison of 6,000 men, but was taken and its defenders massacred. It was evident that the erstwhile predatory Bulgars could now undertake regular sieges. In 810, Nicephorus advanced to recover Sardica, but the troops, discontented and demoralized, mutinied, and the campaign was a complete fiasco. Nicephorus replaced the mutineers by new levies, raised funds by imposing a heavy tax on monasteries, and by levying an increased retrospective land tax on large proprietors, and again took to field in 811. He pushed rapidly forward to Markelon, defeated the Bulgarians, and captured one of Krum's villas with considerable treasure. Krum sued for peace, but Nicephorus demanded complete submission, to which the Bulgarian warrior king naturally refused to consent. 
The army lay in careless order, apparently thrown off its guard by the negotiations. There was treachery in the camp. More than one imperial officer had deserted during the war. Treachery alone, even if we admit considerable laxity of discipline, can fully account for what followed. On July 25th, Krum made a great night assault. The army was taken by surprise. The Bulgarians swarmed through the camp, massacring the bewildered troops almost without resistance. Nicephorus and many great officers were slain. Stavrakios was desperately wounded. The story of a Bulgarian circumvallation is obviously fabulous. A large part of the army, with Stephen, general of the guard, and Theoctetos, count of the palace, escaped down the valley of the Hebrus to Adrianople. As it brought the wounded emperor Stavrakius safely out of the panic and carnage, it is probable that part of it retained its organization, but it left behind it many thousands of dead and captives, and all its supplies and baggage. Stavrakius was proclaimed sole emperor at Adrianople, and the army was ready to stand by him, but his hurts were clearly mortal, and the question of a successor was urgent. Michael Rangabe, a Greek noble who had married Procopia, the daughter of Nicephorus, claimed the crown in right of his wife, and was supported by the Iconodules and by most of the malcontents. A Greek, he was naturally an Iconodule, and took an oath that he would put no one of orthodox principles to death, and would faithfully defend church and clergy. Stavrakius retired into a monastery, and shortly afterwards died. Michael entirely reversed the policy of Nicephorus. He persecuted the Paulician heretics of Asia so fiercely that they began to form independent frontier republics. He wasted immense sums on the clergy, though perhaps by his wife's advice much was also done for charity and for the families of the slain of Marcellon. The emperor was probably the most insignificant ruler who had ever occupied the throne, and when no effort was made to check Krum's ravages, discontent spread fast. In 812, Krum took Debeltos, Ancialus, and other places. He made overtures for peace, but one of his conditions was that all deserters should be delivered up to his vengeance, and to this Michael's counsellors stoutly refused to agree. They declared that never should the empire so disgrace itself. Krum took Mesembria in November, and early next year advanced on Constantinople, but was forced to withdraw by an outbreak of plague. The weak emperor showed his gratitude for the intercession of the saints by covering the tomb of the patriarch Tarasius with silver, 
and became more than ever an object of contempt to the troops. In May, Krum again advanced. Michael joined the army at Adrianople, and after much hesitation risked a battle at Versinicia, in which he was totally defeated. The European troops on the left were almost exterminated, but the Asiatic division held out desperately and finally retreated, covered by the Anatoliki under Leo the Armenian. The emperor fled to Constantinople, while the beaten army rallied at Adrianople, proclaimed Leo the Armenian emperor, and followed to dethrone Michael. There was no opposition. Michael was tonsured. His sons, Theophylactos and Ignatius, emasculated, and likewise forced into monasteries, and Leo crowned in Hagia Sophia on July 11, 813. Michael survived his deposition for 32 years. Leo was an Armenian noble of the Arzunian clan. His elevation, though, mainly due to his military ability, was also a sign of the great Armenian influence in the empire. He had several children, the eldest of whom, Sembat, was proclaimed his father's colleague under the name of Constantine. Michael of Amorium, a friend of Leo, who had commanded on the right in the recent disastrous battle, was created a patrician. Thomas the Slav, another distinguished officer, appointed general of the Optimati. Manuel the Mamigonian, an Armenian, was placed in command of the Armeniaki. On July 17, six days after Leo's coronation, the Bulgarian host, 30,000 of them cased in iron, arrived before the walls of Constantinople. Leo resorted to the shameful device of endeavouring to assassinate Krum at a personal interview by means of an ambush. Krum was forced to fly for his life, while his attendants were killed or taken. He revenged himself by plunder and massacre, storming Selimbria, Redestos, and Apri. Perinthus alone held out. Finally, Adrianople, which had been left to itself when the army marched for Constantinople, was starved into surrender and plundered. Leo's cowardly treachery had had terrible results. The consequences could not have been worse had the foul attempt on Krum's life never been made. Leo remained in Constantinople during the winter, adding to the fortification and energetically reorganizing the army, for Krum had resolved to make an effort to besiege the capital. The Bulgarian army raided Thrace during the winter and captured Arcadiopolis. Leo dared not attack it, and it went home in triumph with a great booty. Krum, meanwhile, had died, very fortunately for the empire. He was perhaps the most formidable adversary that it had seen since Gezeric. 
Leo had at last put together an army able to take the field, and in the spring of 814 he marched to Mesembria. The Bulgarians, confident of the success, advanced against him, but Leo attacked them in their camp, and after a furious struggle, gained a bloody and complete victory. The Bulgarian host is said to have been annihilated. Certainly, its loss was enormous. The fabric of Bulgarian greatness fell at a single blow. Leo's victorious troops, with five years of defeat to avenge, wasted the whole country with ruthless barbarity. The Bulgarians could not retaliate, and King John Omortag was glad to conclude peace for thirty years. The disorders in the Abbasid Caliphate left the eastern frontier at peace, and in the west, after some piratical skirmishing, the Aglobites of Kerwan made a ten years' truce with the empire. Leo was then able to devote his attention to internal affairs. He would seem to have modelled himself consciously upon Leo the Third. He reorganized the army and reestablished the military frontier against Bulgaria. Administrative corruption and disorder were repressed with a stern hand. Leo's justice as the final judge of appeal was universally acknowledged. His religious tendencies were iconoclastic, but he endeavored at first to follow a policy of toleration, and it was only when the patriarch Nicephorus publicly anathematized Antonius of Sileum, the leader of the iconoclast church party, and the troops began to retaliate by defacing images that the emperor deposed him, and substituted Theodotus Melissenos, a strong iconoclast. The chief iconodules were removed from the office. The most prominent, Theodore of Studium, was banished. Otherwise, there were no punitive measures. Persecution there was none. Leo's reign was on the whole one of considerable prosperity, but he was not destined to die in peace. Michael of Amorium, actuated solely, as it would seem, by selfish ambition, plotted to make himself emperor. He was imprisoned and sentenced to death, but his associates, still at liberty, made their way into the emperor's private chapel on the morning of Christmas Day, 820, disguised as choristers, and murdered him on the very steps of the altar. They rushed to the dungeons, released Michael, and proclaimed him emperor without waiting to remove his fetters. Leo's sons were seized and emasculated, his wife forced to take the veil, and the hapless family, bereaved and mutilated, sent across to the Princess Islands, with the dismembered remains of the murder emperor lying among them in a sack. Michael of Amorium was not worthy of comparison with the man whom he had so violently succeeded. He was a good soldier, but otherwise 
possessed of no great ability, cruel and overbearing, something of a braggart also, a sort of crowned augereau. He was an elderly widower, with a son in the prime of manhood. He crowned this son, Theophilus, his colleague, and contracted a second marriage with the princess Euphrosyne, daughter of Constantine the Seventh. She had already taken the veil, but the patriarch absolved her from her vows, though the marriage was probably only nominal. Michael's accession was the signal for a fierce and prolonged civil war. Thomas the Slav took arms to seize the throne, and enlisted in his cause all Asia Minor, except Armeniacon and Obsikion. He made a treaty with the Caliph Mamun, and was crowned emperor by Job, Patriarch of Antioch. But he committed a grave error in enlisting bodies of Mohammedan's mercenaries, thus giving his enterprise an anti-national character. In 821, he besieged Constantinople, which was stoutly defended by Michael and Theophilus, while the Armeniacs and Obsequians were enforced at Chalcedon and prevented the formation of a complete blockade. Two attempts to storm were frustrated, and in 822, Michael's fleet defeated that of Thomas and cut him off from Asia. Thomas was defeated by an army of Bulgarians, which had seized the opportunity to make a raid on Thrace, and thereupon Michael made a sortie, broke up the siege, and blockaded Thomas in Arcadiopolis. After a siege of five months, the place fell, and Thomas and his son were taken and executed under circumstances of hideous cruelty their limbs being amputated previous to hanging. This unfortunate civil struggle, which lasted for nearly three years, was productive of much misery and destruction of property within the empire, and was the cause of a grave disaster without. In 823, an army of pirates from Egypt landed in Crete, and occupied it, with little difficulty. The people were apathetic. At least one district made a favorable treaty with the Corsairs, who established themselves in a gigantic fortress near Knossos, which they called Kandak. For nearly a century and a half, the island became a hotbed of pirates. We shall have occasion to see the misery which this robber community was able to inflict. Michael made two attempts to recover Crete, but both were completely defeated. A third attempt was successful in clearing the seas of the pirate squadrons, but Kandak was not taken, and Crete remained Mohammedan. Next, in 827, Ziadetala of Kerwan, invited by Euphemius, a Syracusan rebel who had been threatened with mutilation for the rape of a nun, invaded Sicily. 
the Byzantine troops were beaten at Mazara, and Agrigentum fell. Syracuse was next besieged, but the plague decimated the Saracens, and they were driven westward by reinforcements from Constantinople. The tide of success ebbed and flowed, but the Saracens, supported by swarms of adventurers from Egypt and Africa, slowly gained ground, and the troubles of the reign of Theophilus prevented the Roman government from sending reinforcements. Michael's general conception of his sovereignty appears to have been that it afforded him a good opportunity for taking his ease. He certainly neglected imperial affairs in the West. We have seen that he failed to recover Crete, a feat which at this time was not very difficult. Internally, he appears to have followed a listless policy of laissez-faire. He temporized with iconoclasts and iconodules, and recalled Theodore of the Studium from banishment, but he was probably an iconoclast at heart. His son Theophilus was decidedly one. Michael obtained very qualified support from the Orthodox party. He died in October 829. It was fifty years since a Roman sovereign had died peacefully in possession of authority. Theophilus succeeded quietly to the undivided exercise of the supreme power. Theophilus was a curious figure. He was a man of decided character, a strong and even bigoted iconoclast of the type of Constantine VI. He had received an excellent education from the great scholar John the Grammarian. He was a gallant warrior and a conscientious administrator, but vain and ostentatious, somewhat petty and mean in his instincts, and cursed with a suspicious and discontented temper which led him into the commission of more than one deed of cruelty. His first act was to execute the murderers of Leo V. He seems to have been actuated by a superstitious dread of the vengeance of heaven. But seeing that he directly benefited by the deed, and that the murderers had been pardoned by his father, the justice of his action was very problematical. He devoted much attention to improving the administration of justice, but his measures were so arbitrary and harsh that his interference probably did as much harm as good, though the excellence of his intention was never questioned. His notions of justice were oriental, and in other matters, to quote Finley, the minute attention which Theophilus gave to performing the duties of a prefect indicates that he was deficient in the grasp of intellect required for the clear perception of the duties of an emperor. Theophilus was a widower at his accession, and as he was sonless, it was important that he should marry again. His stepmother, Euphrosyne, helped him by giving a grand reception 
to as many of the beauties of the empire as could be assembled, and in the midst of the festivities the emperor entered to choose his bride, with a golden apple in his hand, a queer bit of rather childish posing. As he came down the line of courtesying maidens, he saw the poetess Cassia and stopped by her, but for some reason could not find nothing better to say than that woman was the source of all evil. Yes, sire, came the swift reply, but she is the source of all the good also. Cassia, scholar and poetess, was not to be crowed down by a mere crowned head, but the small-minded monarch's vanity was stung by the retort, and he turned away in irritation. Then he saw Theodora, the daughter of the Drungarius Marinus, standing with dropped eyelids, and gave her the fateful toy without a word. Dr. Bussell very rightly points out that Theodora was a scion of the great Romanized Armenian house of the Mamigonians, leading us to the conclusion that the selection had been arranged. But against this it must be remembered that none but girls of high station would be present, and that Euphrosyne and Theophilus would hardly have deliberately insulted Cassia by a prearranged repulse. Probably the affair was genuine enough. One strong argument in favor of this theory is that Theodora was a devoted iconodule, whom Theophilus would hardly have chosen had he known of her convictions. In 832, Theophilus issued an iconoclastic edict, prohibiting every display of image worship and forbidding the use of the word holy before the name of a saint. The edict was enforced with considerable severity. Theophilus rarely or never inflicted the death penalty, but there was a great recrudescence of torture, and many iconodules were scourged, mutilated, or branded. Theophilus was inconsistent in his proceedings. However, his young wife procured the pardon of several prominent iconodules, and he would not ill-treat her, though probably her influence did much to encourage the opposition. He strengthened himself by procuring the election of his tutor, John the Grammarian, as patriarch. The latter, however, was a man of moderation, and no increased intensity of persecution followed. By this time the caliphate was visibly breaking up, though still retaining some show of strength, under the enlightened Caliph Mamun. Mamun's reign was distracted by civil wars and revolts, especially in Persia, where a great rising took place under Babek. The result was an immigration into the empire, chiefly of Persia-Armenian Christians, whose number was so large that a corps of 30,000 troops was organized from them. Their chief was a great noble, who claimed descent 
from the Achaemenids. He was known among the East Romans by the name of Theophobos, and received in marriage the hand of the emperor's sister Helena. The protection granted by Theophilus to these refugees caused a renewal of the dormant war. A Saracen army under Abu Khazar invaded the empire in 831 and gained a considerable victory over Theophilus in person. Next year, however, the fortune of war changed, and the Saracen forces which entered the empire were met by Theophilus in Carciana and completely defeated. In 833, Mamun himself appeared in the west and ravaged Cappadocia, but died in the same year. The first ill successes of Theophilus had roused his bad instincts, and he acted towards his generals with such suspicious harshness that one of the most distinguished, Manuel, fled to the Caliph. A splendid embassy under John the Grammarian was sent to Baghdad immediately after the death of Mamun with the object of concluding peace with Mutasim, now Caliph. John had orders, very ill-advised, but which he duly carried out, to make an ostentatious display of wealth of the empire. He failed to achieve the main purpose of the embassage, but succeeded in inducing Manuel to return. About this time, Kherson was formally annexed, and a fortress named Sarkel, built on the Don to protect the great trade route eastward. The amount of territorial gain is uncertain. The imperial general was Petronas, brother of Theodora. Irritated by the failure of his overtures to Mutasim, Theophilus crossed Taurus in 836 and ravaged Melitine. A Saracen army was defeated with great loss, and he marched unopposed to Samosata, which was taken and destroyed. Among the towns sacked was Sozopetra, a place for which Mutasim appears to have had peculiar affection. He is said to have made a special appeal to Theophilus to spare it. The expedition appears to have been characterized by much wanton cruelty, and Mutasim swore a solemn oath that he would destroy in return the home of Theophilus. Meanwhile, the war in Sicily dragged on. The Saracens were continually reinforced by desperados from Barbary and troops sent by the Aglabite monarchs, while Theophilus on his side supported his generals with energy, thereby however seriously weakening his forces in Asia Minor. By 837, Mutasim had quieted Persia, and was ready to begin the fulfillment of his oath. In 838, he invaded the empire in two columns. The main attack was directed from Tarsus straight on Amorium, and was led by Mutasim in person. The subsidiary one was commanded by Afshin, 
the best of Mutasim's captains. It consisted of 30,000 Persians and Arabs, 10,000 Turks, and the whole levy of Armenia under its Christian governor, Sembat. Its mission was to invade Cappadocia and distract Theophilus, while the main host, 130,000 men, every one with Amorium painted upon his shield, marched forth from the gates of Tarsus to fulfill the vow of Mutasim. Theophilus was clearly very weak in proportion. The army was probably much reduced by drafts to Sicily. Perhaps it had never been reorganized after the disorders of Michael's accession. It certainly had no trust in the emperor, who on his side was without confidence in his officers. Theophilus seems at first to have taken up a defensive position in the Cilician passes, but Afshin's advance turned his flank, and leaving only Etios, the general of the Anatoliki, to observe Mutasim, he hastened to throw himself upon his general. A great battle was fought at Dasimon, and Theophilus was completely defeated he displayed plenty of useless personal bravery and was finally escorted off the field by Theophobos and his Persian-Armenians, while Manuel atoned for his temporary lapse from loyalty by dying at the head of the rearguard. Theophilus rallied his broken troops only at Amasea, whence he retreated to Dorileum. Meanwhile, the caliph's vanguard, under his Turkish general Ashnas, forced the Cilician passes. His main body, defiling safely under its cover, came through and concentrated on Tiana, and Etios, outnumbered by at least five to one, could make no stand. He called in every available man and retreated steadily upon Amorium. From Tiana to Amorium is more than 200 miles, but Etios outmaneuvered the overwhelming army which was in pursuit and reached the doomed city in safety. He sent on such regiments as he could spare to reinforce the emperor and threw himself into Amorium with his best troops, resolved to defend it to the last extremity. Ravaging Laconia and Cappadocia with the usual barbarity, the Saracens came on to besiege Amorium. A furious assault was instantly made and gallantly repulsed. Theophilus made overtures for peace. The bishop of Amorium offered to ransom the city, but Mutasim was deaf. He wanted only vengeance, and renewed his assaults again and again, every attempt being repelled with terrible loss. For nearly two months Amorium held out desperately, but famine told steadily upon the gallant defenders, and the end was certain. Theophilus could not or dared not advance to the relief. 
Treachery did what the Caliph's hosts could not achieve. A scoundrel named Voiditzes, presumably a Slav, but perhaps an Armenian, betrayed his trust. The Saracens poured in by the gate he opened, and Amorium was Mutasim's after a splendid defense of fifty-five days. The remnants of the garrison were massacred, and Mutasim proceeded to fulfill his vow by a foul and calculated butchery of the inhabitants. As far as possible, the place was destroyed. Thirty thousand inhabitants are said to have perished. Mutasim bought his not very glorious success at the price of seventy thousand men. Etios and forty-two officers were taken, kept as prisoners for seven years, and finally murdered by Vatek, the son and successor of Mutasim. Gibbon very justly says that Mutasim had sacrificed the lives of seventy thousand subjects to a point of honor. He made no attempt to utilize his success, but retired, retaining no foot of ground after such tremendous exertions. He refused to make peace unless Manuel, now dead, and a Persian refugee named Nazar were surrendered. Theophilus would not disgrace himself, and the war dragged on. Nazar was killed in action by the emir Abu Said, but the latter was soon after defeated and killed. Melitene was wasted, and Seleucia, the port of Antioch, sacked by a naval expedition. Theophilus, however, since Amorium had ceased to direct affairs with vigor, he strove to dissipate his growing melancholy by indulging in splendid and useless building operations. His health was declining, and he appointed Theodora regent for his little son Michael, with her uncle Manuel, her brother Bardas, and Theoctistos, the postmaster-general, as her assistants. He excluded his gallant brother-in-law, Theophobos, and just before his death gave way to his suspicions and caused him to be murdered. As he looked upon the dead face of the man who had served him faithfully, his better feelings overcame him. Thou art gone, fear of God, he said mournfully, but I am dear to God no more, and turning away his face died. As he breathed his last, Theodora laid one of the icons that he detested on his breast, so that he should die orthodox and not lack the prayers of the church. It was a superstitious act, but nonetheless one of pure womanly charity, and deserves record. January 20, 842 when Michael III was proclaimed in the Hippodrome, the people called for the coronation also of Manuel, who was highly popular, but he had no intention of wronging his great-nephew, and steadily refused. Loyalty was perhaps stronger in him than religious feeling. He had, hitherto, 
had the name of a strong iconoclast, but now supported his niece's iconodulic policy. An ecclesiastical revolution was effected, and on September 19, the proscribed pictures were restored to the churches. John the Grammarian was deposed and blinded. Theodora secured the prayers of the church for Theophilus by flatly informing the iconodulic ecclesiastics that if they would not grant them, she would support iconoclasm. On the whole, the change was well-timed. The number of convinced iconoclasts was not large. The movement had done good work in raising the moral tone of society. Men were now desirous of peace. A Slavonic revolt in Peloponnesus was put down without trouble, but Theoctistos, ambitious of military renown, failed in expeditions to Colchis and Crete. In Sicily, the loss of Messina in 842 was a fatal blow to the imperial power. It seems also that Sardinia was occupied by corsairs about this time. Its connection with the empire had always been loose. Theoctistos, endeavoring to retrieve his reputation, was completely defeated at the Moropotamos, among the foothills of Taurus, but a great Saracen armament was destroyed by storms off Lycian coast. In 845, the cruel debauchee Vatek put to death gallant general Etios and his companions. They were regarded as martyrs. The Paulician communities were now driven by persecution into open revolt. Their chief Carbeas established himself at Tefrike in Lesser Armenia and joined the dangerous Omar, emir of Malatia, in his raids. Omar was checked by the vigor of Petronas, brother of Theodora, general of Thracesion. Alim, emir of Taurus, was defeated, and in 852 a naval expedition sacked Damietta and held the ruins of Alexandria for a year but the Paulicians long remained troublesome. In 855, dissensions in the Regency ended in the murder of Theoctistos by Bardas, who now became practically supreme, though Theodora did not retire until 857. She is accused of neglecting her son, but it is difficult to say whether the charge is entirely justified, and Bardas may not have been entirely to blame for his nephew's dissolute habits, though he was debauched and unprincipled, as able and active. Theodora's administration had been on the whole successful. The finances had been thoroughly reorganized by Theoctistos, and the treasury contained a reserve of 130,000 pounds of gold and over 300,000 of silver, about 7 million pounds. 
the measures of Bardas were on the whole well conceived and carried out. They embraced every department of state. He gave special attention to the administration of the law, and began the task of drawing up a revised code. He protected learning and refounded the University of Constantinople, placing at its head the great scholar Leo the Mathematician. He did much for the army and effected such a revolution in its tactics that the author of the military manual Peri Paradromis Polemu of the next century speaks of him in the highest terms. His system appears to have been to work the cavalry independently of the infantry against the Saracen raids of mounted men. It was decidedly successful in protecting Asia Minor. At home, however, the court was a scene of constant scandal. Bardas was accused of every vice. The young emperor was already on the high road of dipsomania. The patriarch Ignatius made no secret of his disgust. When Bardas ousted Theodora, he attempted to force her to take the veil, but Ignatius refused to aid the design and finally declined point-blank to administer the sacrament to the dissolute regent. Thereupon Bardas, taking advantage of the enmity which his somewhat excessive zeal had excited, deposed him, substituting in his place Photius, the first secretary of state, a man of great ability and wide culture, connected also with the imperial family. He was probably coerced into accepting office, but once established, showed himself no pliant instrument. Ignatius appealed to the bold and vigorous Pope Nicholas I, and for many years a bitter controversial struggle was waged between successive popes and Photius. There were other points at issue beside the hasty deposition of Ignatius, and in general it may be said that the effect of the struggle was to widen the breach between East and West. During the greater part of this period, Omar of Malatya was active in the Asiatic frontier. In 856, Leo, the imperial general, took the offensive, crossed Euphrates and advanced to Amida. The Saracens retaliated by several raids. Michael failed to check them by besieging Samosata in their rear, and in 860 he was badly defeated by Omar at Dazimon. In the same year, Constantinople was scared by a sudden raid of Russians. A strong state had been built up by Scandinavian chiefs upon the Slav communities in the great eastern plain, and the commercial towns of Novgorod on Lake Ilmen and Kiev. As cold and dear, the rulers of Kiev came down the Dnieper 
with a flotilla of about 200 boats, containing perhaps 7,000 savage warriors, and horrified the Constantinopolitans by running past the capital, landing in Thrace, and ravaging the neighborhood with hideous barbarity. Michael, who had left Constantinople to oppose a Cretan raid, hastily returned and defeated them. But the daring nature of the attempt and the barbarity displayed had created a panic in the capital. In 861, Michael conducted an expedition against Bulgaria. It was successful. King Boris embraced Christianity, but in return Michael retroceded the debatable Zagora, which had changed hands so often since the days of Justinian II. Bulgaria now became rapidly Christianized and gave no trouble for over 30 years. European affairs satisfactorily arranged, it was resolved to deal finally with Omar of Malatia. In 865, Omar collected an army of 40,000 strong, ravaged the Armeniac theme, and sacked Amisus. The Thracian and Macedonian themes were sent to Asia, and the command-in-chief committed to the capable Petronas. His strategy was admirable. Omar, laden with prisoners and booty, was retreating from Amisus, pursued by the Bucellarian, Armeniac, Paphlagonian, and Colonian themes under General Nassar, when he found his path barred by the Anatoliki, Opsikians, and Cappadocians. They took up a position and repulsed him, while Petronas, with the Thracians and Europeans, was nearing his right flank. Omar retreated apparently to the northeast, but was intercepted by Nezar and again defeated. His one hope now was to find a gap in the circle of foes, but before he could do so, Petronas came upon him near Abyssianos in Pontus. He was once more defeated and fled eastward, with the three armies in hot pursuit, only to find himself brought to a standby by an impassable mounting spur, while behind him the circle was completely closed. Harassed and exhausted, the Saracens turned to bay. Petronas ordered a general advance. The ten themes closed in on every side and literally swept their opponents from the face of the earth. Omar fell, hardly a man escaped, and when the news of the catastrophe reached Baghdad, the population broke out into alarming riots. Bardas was losing favor with Michael. The emperor was now a confirmed dipsomaniac, and Bardas created Caesar in 862, joined less and less in his nephew's orgies. He quite possibly hoped to eventually become emperor, and Michael, who went sober, was devoid neither of energy nor ability 
grew suspicious. He confided his suspicions to his grand chamberlain, Basil, a man of half Armenian, half Macedonian descent, who had won his favor in the first instance by his personal strength and skill in horse-breaking. Basil was a man of great natural ability, and endeared himself to the wretched emperor by repeatedly drinking him under the table at the court debauches. Feats of this kind inspired Michael with great admiration, and he gave Basil all his confidence. After some hesitation, he directed him, with the postmaster general Sembat, to make away with Bardas, who was murdered at Michael's feet, April 866. On May 26, Basil was proclaimed emperor and colleague of Michael. Sembat had expected the dead man's title of Caesar, and his disappointment found vent in revolt, in which he was aided by Peganes, Count of Obsicion. The revolt was easily put down, and its leaders blinded. Basil took his position very seriously. Michael found that he had deprived himself of his pleasant boon companion, and grew discontented with him. Amongst his crazy acts at this time was the exhumation and burning of the bodies of Constantine the Sixth and John the Grammarian. He now became liable to delirium tremens. Next, he created a boon companion named Basiliskian, emperor, evidently as a rival to the reformed Basil. The latter's days were clearly numbered, but he resolved to anticipate his fate. He called together relatives and friends, and after an orgy in the Anthemium Palace near Chalcedon, Michael was murdered under peculiarly piteous circumstances. Whatever may be thought of Basil's conduct, he had practically no choice except to slay or be slain. Michael was 29 years of age at the time of his death, though he probably would not have lived much longer. He was already a physical and mental wreck. His mother, who was in the Anthemium Palace at the time of her son's murder, was permitted to give his remains imperial obsequies. She died a few months later, perhaps partly from horror and remorse for her own neglect. Basil, without, as appears, the slightest opposition, became sole emperor. End of section 12. Recording by Mike Botez.